Well, dear brothers and sisters, we come now to the first three verses of John's Apocalypse. That is the original translation of the word Revelation. John's Apocalypse. And I do pray that you and I, when we hear that phrase, Apocalypse, that you and I would not be repulsed or turned off by the phrase. Uh, Let us remember that this letter is not some kind of code that must be broken or unlocked. It has already been unlocked. It has already been revealed. It's no longer concealed. This letter, for all of its symbolism, all of the visions that are within, it is meant to be a pastoral letter. It is meant to fortify and to strengthen. It is not meant to fear or create some kind of scare in you. And this fact is found within the first few words of the letter. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, This morning, with God's help, we shall consider uh, five points that we will draw out of these first three verses, five points for our contemplation. Number one, this letter is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to notice, uh, brothers and sisters, at the outset, how this letter does not begin. This letter does not begin like the great fairy tales throughout time. Once upon a time. Rather, this letter introduces itself as a prophecy of visions. Visions that unveil the true story of Christ's victory over all of his and over all of our enemies. This letter it details or gives to us encouragement of how the bride, the church, will be saved from all of her enemies and every foe that opposes her. This letter introduces itself as the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That is, again, apocalypse is the uncovering. It's the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation or unfolding of obscure things that are really not meant to be obscure. These things are being revealed by Christ. It is the revelation of Christ. All scholars from James Durham to Richard Phillips, they pause at this point to make this most important point. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are being made known through Christ who gives us this revelation. And a few things are important to note. This is not John's revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The vision did not originate with John. The vision did not come somehow out of John's mind, out of John's heart. This message was given to John through the mediation of Christ, our mediator. Christ who received this from God the Father. We'll get to that in a moment. This letter, it reveals Christ. This letter reveals the power of Christ, the victory of Christ, the authority of Christ, and ultimately the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what we have in this letter. A revelation which reveals to us what? What wars will take place between what countries? No, Uh, Who exactly the Antichrist will be? No. This revelation is a letter that reveals to us Christ. When you read the letter of Revelation, Christ is at the center. Christ is the all-important theme of this prophecy. This letter is about Christ. And we must, as we are, as we talked about last week, climbing, if you will, this mountain of understanding... We must keep this at the center of all of our focus. This revelation, this study, all of God's word, it is about Christ. Again, the scriptures, all of the scriptures, 
there's a running theme throughout all of the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of beginnings, Genesis, where Christ was revealed in the Proto-Evangel, in the first gospel, in Genesis 3.15, that book unveils, it, it reveals to us the one who will come to save Christ. And then we come to the very end of the scriptures, Revelation 1.18, Christ says, I am the first, I am the last, and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades from beginning to end. The Alpha and Omega is being revealed to us. Christ. Christ is revealed in all of the scriptures, in all of the Old Testament, in direct prophecies, in types and in shadows. We are being given Christ. Christ is constantly being revealed and is centrally and, and centrally, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. Christ in his incarnation. Christ in his public ministry. Christ in his word and in his works. In his sacrificial death. In his glorious resurrection. In his ascension. In his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of which the prophets foretold. All of the acts of God that pointed us forward. All of the old covenant that would be fulfilled in the revelation of Jesus Christ and in the new covenant. All that has been written by the apostles. All that is, is, is being presently interpreted to us now by his spirit of Christ, by the spirit of Christ is all for the magnificent purpose of revealing Christ. All of it. But revelation, it's, it's not complete, is it? There is still yet to be more revealed. Christ has not finished revealing himself. He is yet operating among us. He is still revealing the gospel to those who, who need to come to saving faith. Uh, there are those who are still hearing the call of Christ and who are still coming to saving faith in Christ. And there is yet one final revelation. That we will receive from Christ. One that we are all looking forward to. It is in that day when Christ will be revealed in glory. It is in that day when Christ will burst through the clouds. With the sounds of trumpets. He will finally reveal himself to every nation. Every tribe. To every tongue. He will reveal himself in the glory that was given to him by the Father. And we are all awaiting that glorious day, are we not? And all of this, all of this glory is being disclosed to us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Dear saints, this letter was written to give the church, you and I, a heavenly perspective. In spite of all of the harsh realities and all of the, the harsh difficulties that we face in this world, we are given this revelation not so that we could satisfy all of our curiosity concerning worldly events and things that are going on. There is no consolation in such knowledge. We've been given this revelation so that we might be instructed. So that we might be encouraged. So that we might be emboldened to see how all of the events of history are leading to one great final event. The revelation of Jesus Christ. To every nation, tribe, and tongue. And for those who hear. For those who read. For those who take heed. To the words within this letter. There is one great conclusion. You are promised a blessing. And what is that blessing? We'll talk about that in a moment. It is that you will be received. When Christ is revealed. That you will be received. You will not be turned away. You will not be told by Christ, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. But for those who read and who hear and who take heed to the words within this letter, there is a well done, good and faithful servant awaiting you when Christ is revealed. Let's go to our second point. The revelation was given by God. The revelation was given by God. 
Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, it says, listen to what it says, Revelation 1, 1, which God gave him. Interesting there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. The first verse not only announces its title, the revelation of Jesus Christ, but it also traces a chain of transmission. Transmission, transition meaning, transmission meaning the way by which a thing has been given. It traces the transmission by which this revelation has reached the church on the earth. There are four steps. Uh, Take note of these. First, God the Father gave the revelation to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed it to and through his angel. Third, the angel communicated it to John. Fourth, John bore witness to all that he saw writing to the seven churches. Let me say that again for those of you who are taking notes. God gave the revelation to Christ. Christ revealed it to his angel. His angel communicated it to John. John communicated it to the church. This scene of of transmission, it will be recapitulated. That's an important word. We're going to see that a lot. Recapitulated means retold. It will be recapitulated in chapters 4 and 5, and then chapter 10, and then potentially again in chapter 12. We are going to see this scene of God handing the revelation to Christ. Christ handing it to the angel. The angel giving it to John. We're going to see this again in chapter 4 and 5, again in chapter 10, and again in chapter 12. It's not a, a, a new event, if you will. It's the same event being told all over again. This is called recapitulation, retelling. Uh, Retelling is saying the same thing again and again and again. That will be a consistent thing that we see in Revelation. Here, in these opening verses, we are given, again, the description of transmission, which gives us insight in the process of what is known as inspiration. The way by which God gives human authors a divine message. In many of our scriptures, God immediately, that is, kind of with, with, with no mediator, God immediately gives his message to one of his prophets who deliver it to the people. Here, it's different. God gives the revelation to Christ, who gives the revelation, or communicates it, which we'll talk about in a moment, communicates it to the angel. The angel then shows the vision to John. And John is commanded to write down all that he sees for the servants, that is, the church. You know the scripture well, don't you? All scripture is inspired by God. Breathed out by God. God is the author of all scripture. Now, if you're like me, one of the things, questions that came up in my mind as I was studying is, we are told that God gave the revelation to Jesus Christ. And my mind asks, well, isn't Jesus Christ God? So how is God giving something to God to give to an angel, to give to John, to give to us? There was a bit of confusion. Isn't Jesus Christ God? Now, thanks be to God, we have a, a, a resident expert in the Trinity, Pastor Isaiah, who I brought all of these confusing questions to. Isn't Jesus Christ God? To that, the church would say... Yes and amen. Of course, Jesus is God. We might then wonder, why is there a distinction being made between God and the Lord Jesus Christ? In this letter, we are presented with the persons of the Trinity. We're going to see the persons a lot throughout this letter. On more than one occasion, we are going to encounter the persons. When we do, we must not allow our minds... To be far from the scriptures. One that we just read in John chapter 14. Believe me. Jesus says to Philip. I am in the father and the father is in me. Jesus says in John 8 48. Before Abraham was. I am. Whenever we see. The distinction between the persons. The scriptures are not saying they are not one. Whenever we see Christ here. Or God there. The spirit there. 
they are not three separate people who are doing three separate things. They are eternally one. And John is not saying Christ is not God. Whenever we hear the word God, we must always think in terms of the triune God. Always. Even if we see God and then next to it, Jesus Christ. We always, whenever we see the word God, we always must think in terms of the Trinity. Never in terms of one God separated by the Son and Spirit. They are always eternally one. That's very clear. Uh, James Durham says in his commentary, There is but one God essentially. So there are, so there are three distinct. Co-equal, co-essential, and co-substantial persons of that blessed Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are yet in a most wonderful, excellent, infinitely perfect, and then he puts in brackets, though inconceivable manner, have an order of subsisting and working among themselves. So when we are seeing God, we are not just seeing uh, God, we are seeing the order in which God operates. We are seeing how God, or the subsistences, as our confession says, how God works within the persons of the Trinity. There is one God, but there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And while they are one, they are also distinct. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. We could say the same for each of the persons. There is a message that is to go forth to the seven churches. And the Father is the sender of that message. And he sends it to the son who gives it to an angel. And then the spirit is mentioned. The spirit is, is kind of the joint speaker. Uh, you know the, the verse well. Those who have ears to hear, listen to what the spirit says to the churches. You see that the son is giving. Uh, the father is giving. The son is communicating. The spirit is speaking. This is the, the work of the triune God. At this point, then, we must ask another question, which I asked. How does God receive anything? How does God receive anything, especially a revelation? How is it possible that God receives anything, especially a revelation? Since Jesus Christ is God the Son, since he is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, how does he receive something, especially revelation? Doesn't he know all, especially in his glorified state? Pastor Isaiah at this point is scratching his head and said, why are you calling me? Does he not equally have same access, same information as the Father and the Spirit within the personage of the Trinity? I hope I'm not losing you at this point. The answer is yes, he does. So then how does God, the Son, receive? Uh, I owe this to Isaiah. He receives in the only manner in which he's made himself able to receive in the incarnation. This is why it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a mention of his incarnation, uh, uh, of the person of his incarnation. He is Jesus Christ in the flesh. And in the flesh, he is able to receive and give. God, the eternal son, has taken on our flesh. He's become like one of his creatures with that addition. He makes himself the mediator and the prophet of a new and better covenant. So in his incarnation, in his flesh, in his glorified state, he remains our prophet and communicates to us as mediator and prophet, giving to us a final word. Here, John is highlighting the position again of Christ, our mediator. John is not saying the son of God is somehow separated from the son of man. He's not saying, well, he's son of God over here. Then he's son of man over here. He is one. But he is functioning in an office of mediator and prophet for the church. And it does not take away from his co-eternal, co-equal stance as being one with the father as the son of God. I hope I'm not confusing you utterly. And if I am... While we're sharing food together, you can explain to me where you got lost. And hopefully, with God's help, I can explain. There's never a break in the Trinity. There, There is never a break in our triune God. 
But listen to what John is doing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Have we ever heard something like this before? If you remember, as we talked about last week, we need tools as we're going along in this journey. And many times we need to remember some of the things that are being alluded to or referred to as revelation is being spoken. There's not a cut and paste. It's not going to be cut from this verse, bring it over here. But there's an allusion to things that have been said. John is alluding to the words of Christ found in, in a particular book that John's very familiar with. John is alluding to the gospel of John. Where in chapter 12, verse 44, he says, Jesus says this in John's gospel. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Listen, stay with me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Verse 48, John 12, 48. He who rejects me does not reject or does not. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings. Has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. We're given this revelation. It's looking forward to the last days, Jesus is saying. And in those last days, people will be judged on whether or not they received or rejected his message. Why are the words of Christ, the incarnate son, why are they so vital in terms of judgment? Because Christ tells us in verse 49, for I do not speak on my own initiative. But the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment to say of what to say and what to speak. The passage written by John finds its way to the opening verse of Revelation. It's not a cut and paste, but it's a clear allusion to the gospel. Verse 50, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the father has told me. So Christ, once again, is saying the same thing. I don't speak on my own initiative, John uh, 1440. I don't speak on my own initiative. I speak the words that have been given to me. So here in Revelation, we have Christ, the, the glorified one saying, I'm giving you the words, church, that God has given to me once again. This is the fulfillment of the servant. This is also the fulfillment of the servant who speaks in Isaiah chapter 50. He says this. The Lord has given me the tongue of the disciples of disciples that I may. This is Isaiah 50, verse four, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as disciples. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not disobedient. Christ in his incarnation speaks as that servant. Christ, the glorified one in Revelation speaks as the one who still mediates and serves on behalf of the church. He is the servant who receives help when he's persecuted. The servant who sets his face like flint and is not ashamed. This is speaking of the son of God in our flesh who stands as our mediator according to his human nature. And he's not only our mediator, but as I said before, he's our prophet. Muhammad is not our prophet. Muhammad is not a prophet. Joseph Smith is not our prophet. Joseph Smith is not a prophet. There is no last prophet but Christ. And Christ speaks to us his final word. Hebrews 11 or 1. I'm sorry. Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. Through whom he made the world. Christ in Revelation, is speaking to us as our prophet in these last days. Christ received the word, and we have, and he has given it to us, and we have heard him. Christ receives the message, because he is the son of God in human nature. Directly without mediation, God gives it to him. The prophets and the apostles received the message indirectly. They received it by Christ, but Christ receives this revelation from God the Father. Or to say, as he said in his human nature, from my God and my father. The revelation was given to him after his exaltation. This is in harmony with his exalted position at the right hand of God. 
according to which he has all power in heaven and on earth. He stands at the pinnacle of creation and God gives him this revelation. Christ holds supreme power and authority over all heaven and earth. All knowledge and all wisdom belong to him. And he gives this revelation to us, the church. And Christ alone has the power, the authority to unveil and disclose that which has been disclosed to him. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to him by God. Number three. They are concerning the things that must that must soon take place. They are concerning the things that must must sorry soon take place. Verse one again. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bond servants, that's the church. The things that, I'm sorry, the things which must soon take place. Uh, we are encouraged now. Because we are given an unveiling of God's plan. What is God going to do? What will history be? God reveals it to us here. Revelation has been given to us to show. But we must be clear. Revelation has not been shown to us in the sense that it shows every single step of human history. It's not going to show us every single step or every single detail of human history. And I think this is where many fail when they interpret the scriptures or when they interpret revelation. Many fail when they interpret this revelation because they attempt to read this letter as if it were chronologically Laying out future events step by step. That's the futurist approach. They see certain events and interpret them as fulfillment of prophecies in Revelation. So they see an event and they go, oh, this just happened. That means now we're over here. If one interprets the letter that way, then it's no wonder why they believe they can interpret or why they believe they can predict the day, the time, and the hour when Christ returns. If that's how you re read Revelation, then it makes sense to put a, a big banister from end to end here with timelines detailing certain historical events. John Hagee is known for this, a false teacher. And other false teachers are known for this as well. They will say, in 1948, Israel became a nation. That is right here on the timeline. And another will say, the, the, the third temple is being built right now. That's over here on the timeline. We're that much closer to, to Christ returning. Uh, Herman Hoeksema, in his commentary, says, the very fact that interpreters of this class that chronological class, differ widely in their choice of events to which these visions are supposed to refer is sufficient reason to condemn this method altogether. They can't even agree on what points in the chron chronological order are actually fulfilling a prophecy. Do we need to know all of the historical events that are before us in order to, to know that Christ is returning? Here's our problem. All of our problem. We don't like not having control. What time are you going to be there? Make sure that you're there. at that. I don't want to wait for you because I've got other things to do. The other things that are planned. Our lives are like that. We like to plan every single. Some of us don't, but most of us like to plan every single thing, every detail of our lives. We want to know what's happening. We want to know when it's happening, why it's happening, when things happen in our lives. Why did this happen? How could this happen? Well, concerning the greatest detail of our lives, the return of Christ, we want to know when, where, how, and why. Well, we know why, but when, where, and how, when, where, and how. And if we don't know the when, where's, and how's, then there's somehow a sense of insecurity. There's somehow a sense of, well, I should be living in fear. That's exactly the opposite of what Revelation is calling us to. It's calling us to live in comfort and enjoy. Well, most of us want, no, unbelievers, not anybody in this church. How much longer do I have before he comes back so that I can get myself ready for his return? 
This is why we are to keep our oils filled, our oil lamps filled. This is why we are to be watchful. This is why we are to, to not uh, give ourselves a leeway, a, a time and space in which we could say, well, at least I've got this much time and then now I know he's coming. Then I'll be ready. We are always ready. We must always be ready for either our going to him or him coming to us. We should be expecting saints. We should be expecting the return of Christ at any moment. This letter provides a general outline for what the church should expect in all of history until Christ returns and also calls us to place our absolute hope on this and this alone, that Christ has promised that he will return. And when he does, it is an absolute victory. Because from time to time, uh, because from that time that Christ rose from this time today, we believe that we have been living in the last days. Therefore, the phrase, the things that must soon take place, it's accurate in spite of the amount of time that's elapsed from the time that Christ rose until today. Christ and his return is guaranteed. It is guaranteed to take place shortly. And this was communicated to the bond service of Christ. They were suffering persecution and they were persevering. For all the bond servants, the servants of Christ, the church, in all of the history of the world, who would suffer persecution and persevere, the promise for all of us is this, Christ will return. And when he does, he will do so victoriously. And in spite of what we see, things are not always as they seem. In spite of the fact that it seems like we don't have victory, in Christ we do. The bond servants of Christ, the church, we have been liberated from the dominion of sin and Satan so that we might serve Christ, our new master, and walk in obedience to him. We have a spirit. We've been made new creatures. Uh, we have been given his, his, his word and his law, and we love his law. It's a light for our path. In these three verses, we are told the things contained in this letter must soon take place. And at the very end of, of verse 3, the time is near. These things must must soon take place. They must soon take place for the time is near. And I'd like to encourage you with this. As we look around the world. As we see the things that are taking place in our time and throughout time. From the time that Christ rose until today, all of those things must take place. All of the things that have taken place must take place. The word must expresses the necessity of the events that have transpired. They must take place. God has ordained them. When we look around the world, we must not forget for one moment, God Almighty is sovereignly ruling and reigning over every single occurrence in time and space. Everything that happens, God is over it. Every event that takes place, God is ruling over it. Every good. Every bad, every difficulty, every victory, Christ is ruling and reigning over every single one of them. All things that take place are the unfolding of the eternal good pleasure of the Most High God. Again, large and small, good and bad, they are all being determined not by cruel fate, not by luck, not by chance, not by a blind force, but by the all-wise counsel of God Almighty, the creator of all things. I encourage you this morning. By the words of Jesus Christ to his servant John. When you survey the world. And you see all of the atrocities. When you survey the world and see all of the injustices. When you observe all of the abuses. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars. Know this, these things must take place. And let your comfort and rest be found in this, for the time is near. The time of your Christ returning, our Christ returning, the time is near. These things must take place. Don't be shocked. Don't be fearful. Don't be scared. They must take place. 
Christ tells us the time is near. That should create in you joy. We all know what's going on in the Middle East. We are not happy about what's happening, but it must take place. The time is near. We all know that the church is being more and more persecuted in this country. In this country. That you are being ostracized if you claim Christ. In this country. More and more. These things must take place. For the time is near. These things point us to the telos. To the final end. To the final destination of all things. The consummation of Christ in his kingdom. And your enjoyment in him. Forever. All these things must take place because Christ is returning. What a glorious assurance that is. Because Christ is turning, is returning. In the darkest moments of our lives. When the cruel oppressors ar- arise and persecute the church. In all ages. We've had this great note to sing. All these things must soon take place because Christ is returning. Take heart because Christ has overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Rome, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Peter exhorted the church, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober minded. Watch and pray. For the church of Philadelphia, Christ declares, behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that none, no one will take from you your crown. At the end of this letter, Christ says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy. In verse 12 of chapter 22, he encourages the church that he is coming quickly and that he is coming with a reward. Christ does not tarry. Christ is not slack in concerning his promise to return. Even though this may not appear to be the case from our vantage point, Centuries have elapsed since Christ gave his promise to return. Centuries. Two thousand years. And yet the promise is this. It's short. These things must soon take place. The time is near. That hardly seems short, doesn't it? Two thousand years doesn't seem short. If you and I, though, have learned anything about God, it's this. We learn that God's time is not like our time. We learned that when he operates, he does not operate on our time scale, but on his. We may have learned, like the old timers used to say, he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. He is an on time God. Tremendous things must take place before he returns. The whole church must be gathered still before he returns. Do you know, saints, that list of those who we have up here that we're praying for, it contains some who belong to Christ, who have not yet turned to Christ, and he will not return until they come. There are yet still those sheep who have not come into his fold. Still those sheep who are his who have not yet repented of sin and not yet turned to Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Jews must be brought in until Christ returns, before Christ returns. So there is no delay. Christ is working to bring all of his sheep in. Will that come in your and my time? Who knows? But he will not come until all of his sheep have been gathered. Isn't that good? That he will not leave a one behind. That he will go after that one. And bring him, her, into his fold before he returns. He will leave none behind. Praise be to God for that. And and the last two points are very short, but, but they're important to note. Number four. Sent and communicated by his angel. Revelation. Sent and communicated by his angel. Revelation 1, and I think this is around 2 or so. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to, the, to his bondservant, John. Uh, this could be a point that we easily skate past, but I don't think we should. Christ, our mediator, Christ, our prophet, receives this revelation and then sends it 
not to John first, to his angel. The angel who then sends it to John. The literal uh, phrasing of this is Christ communicated it. Or in the Greek, it's a word for signified it. Your Bible may say communicated it or signified it. This means that he cast the message forward to his angel in signs and symbols derived from our life, earthly life and experience. Christ receives this message, which implies that the way that Christ received it from the father is different from the way that Christ communicates it to the angel. Christ receives this message from the father in a divine manner. And communicates it to us in the only manner in which we would be able to receive it through signs and symbols. Christ, in a sense, condescends his message. He stoops down low in order to communicate to us as we would to a child as we bend down and speak to them. Christ communicates to us through this angel his message by which the angel communicates it to John. We receive this message then in the only manner in which we could understand it. That's important. When we read through Revelation, this is so confusing. Imagine if Christ communicated it the way that he received it. We would have no sense of what it meant. But Christ in his love and in his mercy unlocks, unseals, as we will see, unseals this message so that we might receive it. And not be confused or scared, but be encouraged. Now, it's at this point that we must not do something. Let's not be fixated on who is the angel. Is it is it Michael? Is it Gabriel? Is it another angel? Which angel is it? Is the angel's name mentioned? Then it's not important. Is the angel's name mentioned? Not important. We would be missing the forest through the trees. We would be fixated on the things that are not meant to be fixated on. We would miss the main point. Throughout this letter, we will see a number of angels. And they are being employed to bring these visions and perceptions to the mind of John. But that's not outside of the normal pattern of what we see in Scripture. You know this. Angels often communicate a heavenly message from God. An angel appeared to Mary. And communicated to her that she would give birth to Christ. An angel appeared to the women at the tomb of Christ. And announced that Christ had resurrected. Resurrected. I'm sure you can think of many more occurrences where angels are, are giving a message. He's called. Here's what's important. His angel. The angel is referred to as his angel. The, or the angel of Christ. And that simply means this. Christ is exalted above all powers and all principalities. He's been given charge over all of heaven and earth, even the angels. So when he calls an angel to deliver his message, that angel belongs to him. He's created that angel and has authority over him. Who was it? It doesn't matter. He belongs to Christ. It's Christ's angel. We have already established that this is John, the beloved, the apostle of Christ, commanded to write down all that he saw for the church and for what purpose? In closing, our fifth and final point. For a blessing. Blessed is he who reads and hears. Blessed is he who reads and hears. For what purpose? For, for a blessing. Revelation 1 through 3. Or Revelation 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and hears. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And heed the things that are written in it. For the time is near. The blessing spoken of here is not a monetary blessing. Uh, It's not as though if you read this and hear this and obey it, you can expect uh, an unexpected amount uh, to be deposited into your bank account in the morning. It's not that kind of blessing. Uh, It's a spiritual blessing. It is the inheritance of the glory of the kingdom of Christ in the day of Christ. Is there anything on this earth that compares to that? It's the inheritance of the glory of the eternal kingdom of Christ. When Christ arrives, it's welcome into my kingdom. 
That's the blessing that we receive upon reading, hearing, and obeying. It, this inheritance is the incorruptible inheritance. It's the undefiled corrupt, uh, inheritance. It's the inheritance that will not fade away. Many of us, we have things that we are putting away for our children. We, we are putting them away and we are hoping that they are preserved for them one day. Those things can be corrupted. Those things can be defiled. Those things will eventually pass away. But the blessing that is provided for us, the inheritance that is given to us in Christ, it's incorruptible. It's imperishable. It will not fade away. And it's reserved for saints who endure. Would you please allow the word endure to echo in your hearts and minds throughout this day and throughout this week? Endure. Endure. Press on. Keep going. Don't stop. Don't turn around. Don't allow the, the frustrations of life and, and the, the difficulties that you experience in your day-to-day life cause you to turn away from Christ. Endure. Press on. There's a blessing that awaits you. Don't allow the, 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 the hardships of the world, even the things that you see on the news, the things that are being reported, the things that you see that are bad news on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever else you use. Don't allow those things to cause you to say, I will turn from Christ and walk with Him no more. There is a blessing promised to you. The kingdom, the imperishable, incorruptible kingdom that will not fade away is awaiting you who endure. Do not stop. The time is near. It's at any moment. There's nothing in this world that will be able to satisfy you like Christ. Don't turn around. Learn from Lot's wife. Learn from Lot's wife. There's nothing back there in Sodom for you. Press on. Press forward. There is a promise ahead. Endure it. For those who endure, there is a promise from God. The blessedness of the new Jerusalem. The coming down from God out of heaven. The new creation wherein righteousness shall dwell, where they will, where we will tabernacle with God. He will be with us forever. Don't turn around. That's what's ahead of you. Don't say, I can't do this anymore. You can. Not in your own strength. Of course, not in your own strength. You must depend upon the strength and power of God the Spirit. It's once we leave Him, or or, or stop relying on Him, I should say. Well, no wonder it's hard. No wonder it becomes difficult. No wonder we want to quit. The blessedness that Revelation looks forward to has been given for all those who read and hear and take heed to the words found within. Fix your attention, dear saints. Fix your energy. Fix your contemplations. Not upon these things that pass away. There's nothing but darkness and misery there. Is life hard? Yeah, it's hard. Who said it was going to be easy? But you don't point to Christ and say, therefore I'll turn away from you. Solomon said about this, and I'll turn away from you and find my comfort somewhere else. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What this world offers you, meaningless, meaningless, all of it is meaningless. From the man, from the lips of the man who had it all, who did it all. And at the end of it, it's all worthless. There's only one thing that remains, he says. And it's found in Christ. You know, look around, the world's not improving. There's no silver lining among men. No humanitarian efforts will ever establish lasting peace. Nothing in your own personal life. 
Your relationships being exactly where you want them to be. Your money being exactly where you want. It will never be exactly where you want it to be, will it? None of those things will ever make you say, ah, it is well with my soul. We might say, well, give me the money, then I'll, I'll find out from there. No. And I don't mean to be a pessimist, but in closing. It's important that we fix our eyes, not upon this world. Nor the fleeting pleasures of this world, nor cling to the things of this world that are passing away. Look to Christ. And if you look to Christ, there will be good reason for cheer. If you look to Christ, there will be good reason to cheer for cheer. If you look to the church, you will find good reason for cheer. If you look to Christ and to his church, you will see the promises of Christ. And it's a good reason for cheer. The promise that there is one who can bring lasting peace, everlasting pleasure, satisfy all of our hopes and longings. It's found only in Christ. He promises blessing. It's not general. It's particular. It's for those who are his people. You and I. Those who read. Those who hear. And those who take heed. It's the church. I pray. That you and I. As we sit here this morning. As we've gathered to hear God's word. That we would be encouraged and encourage one another to endure. To look forward, not only to the blessing that we have here now, but the blessing that's even before us in Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, dear saints, given to him by God. Christ, our mediator and our prophet, who has spoken the final word about those things which must soon take place, communicated this message to his angel, who gave it to John, the beloved, to give to the church of every age, and of every age, so that we might be blessed when we read, hear, and take heed to the words of Christ. Heaven is before us. Christ is coming quickly. Let us be ready. Let's pray.